one of the ways that the Sufis work is to dedicate their lives to service to other people, not just because it's a good thing or a moral thing or an ethical thing, but also because it's just the way things work that when you are giving of yourself, you're also receiving and generating life force, not only for yourself, but also for other people. Yes. Hello, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a podcast about meditation, mindfulness, and health. And today, I'm super excited to share my interview with my good friend and aboutmeditation.com co-founder, Tom Bershad. And before we jump into the interview with Tom, I just want to remind you that the One Mind Meditation Podcast, we are part of a fantastic podcast network, which I encourage you to check out. It's called Podcastica, and you can check that out over at podcastica.com. That's podcastica.com. Go check it out. All right, back to our show. So I am so excited to share part one of my two-part interview with Tom Bershad. Tom has been meditating for over 40 years and he was really, he was initiated into meditation in the early 70s when he was a young man and he took up transcendental meditation. I think he was about 16 years old. And then fast forward, Tom eventually abandoned TM and started practicing in the Sufi tradition. And he's been on that path now for over two decades. And in part one of this two-part interview, we explore a whole range of questions pertaining to Sufism, touching on the history of Sufism, the role of the spiritual teacher on the path, the goal of the Sufi path, and how to practice different Sufi meditation techniques. We also explore the initial steps that mark the beginning of the path in the Sufi tradition. It's a fascinating interview. It's a deep dive into this whole topic. And Tom shares captivating stories about the origins of Sufism that, for me, they were surprising. I, I really didn't know how old this tradition is. And also, he really illuminates how it relates to Islam, which is, I know, a popular question with a lot of people. And I think one thing Tom does brilliantly is he illuminates the universal nature of Sufism and really demonstrates how at the core of it are these perennial mystical teachings. And if you've always wanted to know about Sufism and Sufi meditation, you're going to love this. And definitely, I encourage you, don't miss part two of this episode. We're going to be publishing that in a week. And in that episode, Tom tells the extraordinary story of his visit to Turkey, where he, where he, well, he visits the tomb of Rumi, who is considered the greatest Sufi teacher ever. And Tom's story and what happens to him there is really out of this world. It's going to blow your mind. So I encourage you to check that out next week. Don't miss it. And okay, I hope you enjoy this interview with Tom Rashad. Tom, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have you back on here. Welcome. Thank you, Morgan. I'm really glad to be back as well. 
Great. So today we're going to talk about Sufism and Sufi meditation, something that you have a lot of experience with. I'd love to ask you really about the history of Sufism, but before that, can you start by sharing with us a little bit, how did you come to practice in the Sufi tradition? How did you come to practice meditation in the Sufi tradition? Sure. Uh, I, I think that the answer to that has a lot more to do with the fact that at a certain point, I've been meditating for a number of years, and I got to a point where I felt as though my progress would be enhanced if I actually had a more personal teacher, someone that I literally knew and could ask questions of and receive guidance from, as opposed to being part of a large organization like uh, TM, for example, where I may have seen Maharishi two or three times from a distance, but I never really felt as though I had a personal relationship with him. Right. So somewhere I would say in my late 30s, I started to move in the direction of looking for a personal teacher. And my readings at that point were in what I would call the Western Sufi tradition. And that led me to look for a teacher in that particular tradition. And that's the short answer of how I came to uh, find myself in that particular context. Yes, that's great. So tell us about Sufism. I think there's a lot of curiosity out there. A lot of people have been exposed to the writings and the poetry of Rumi, but generally speaking, I think there's not a, a, a real depth of knowledge about this philosophy and practice. So can you sort of set the stage for us and tell us a little bit of the story of Sufism? Sure. One of the first things that people tend to ask about if they know anything at all about the history of the Sufi tradition is that there's an awareness that it was expressed primarily through the Islamic context. While that is true, and that is a big part of the history, and many of the great teachers and masters of the tradition were, in fact, from that culture, the actual impulse that drove the Sufi way, in theory, comes from a much older, much deeper past. Hmm. And like a lot of other uh, religious traditions or mystic traditions, you have different schools of thought. So, you know, the Christ in the Christian church, for example, there, there are probably, I think, thousands of different groups within the Christian community that would consider themselves Christians, but in many ways they look very different from each other. Uh, but the overall impulse is the belief in Christianity. Yeah. So in a similar way, not quite on the scale of that, but uh, in a similar way, the Sufis as a worldwide movement, if you will, really can be divided up into many, many different types of orders and different uh, types of path traditions that in many respects look very different from each other. But the sort of traditional history is that the people around the Prophet Muhammad who were sort of a, an inner circle, if you will, 
mm. were the first people to create what became known in in many ways as the the external face of the Sufis. They did not call themselves that. In fact, from readings that I've done, the word or the term Sufism is actually something that was coined probably in the 1800s. But the people of that era may have looked at themselves as more serious and more mystical than the traditional Islamic culture with, within which they were embedded. But uh, even from the very beginning, there was a difference that people could perceive. And many people sort of looked at the uh, mystics of that tradition as somewhat heretical to the orthodox Islamic way of doing things. I see. So that's sort of the, that's a very brief explanation of the the origin of the Sufis as part of the, of the Islamic tradition. The real impulse, though, as I said, goes back much deeper, and the people that I have been in connection with really have talked about what we do as something that literally is as old as mankind, that literally from a very early stage of humanity appearing on the planet, that there was always a way to connect with a larger, higher part of oneself, and that the techniques and path to doing that has always been around. And we, at least in the group that I am a part of, call it the tradition or the great, mm -hmm. great tradition. To a large extent, I think that it really is reflected in all religions and all paths, that there is this one basic impulse that human beings feel to connect with the source and to become uh, part of something greater than themselves. And uh, although that may sound very abstract, that really is the essential impulse behind the Sufi way to the extent that I know and understand it. In terms of the universality that you're pointing to in the Sufi tradition and teachings and, and really the goal, would you say that's the same idea as, say, like this idea of the perennial teachings? Yes, I would. I think the idea is, and again, this is influenced by my own association with people of, the, of this particular tradition, but that's very similar to how they talk about it, that uh, there's sort of a universal aim in mankind to connect to source, and it gets reflected differently depending on the time, the place, and the people, but in the end, it all goes to the same place, and mm -hmm. the differences are really more external as opposed to internal. Got it. Okay, so can you tell me what is the origin of the word Sufi? Well, there's a lot of discussion about that, uh, probably mostly amongst Sufis, <laughs> but uh, in uh, some camps, the the theory is that the people, the early uh, practitioners of the Sufi way were known to wear a, a, a woolen cloak, and uh, Suf, I believe, is a word in Arabic or in uh, Persian, I don't recall the origin exactly, but that Suf is a, uh, another, is a word for a woolen cloth. So 
in some camps, people believe that the uh, cloak was what they were identified by, and as they wandered about the countryside, people would refer them to them as Sufis. Another understanding of it is that the word Suf actually has some very positive qualities, kind of along the lines of a mantra that the sound Suf is somehow associated with moving in the direction of wholeness and oneness, and that just the mere usage of that word is enough to actually begin the movement of the mind in that direction. Hmm. That's fascinating. So in Sufism, can you tell us a little bit, what are, what are the basic tenets? What are the basic beliefs or assumptions about reality that it teaches? Well, you know, like every other mystical tradition, uh, the Sufis believe in a non-dual reality that all of what we are and all of what we see and feel and, and all of existence is really one being. And the origin of our universe or our reality is really sort of like a dream or a thought in the mind of the original impulse of reality to define and to move in a certain direction where it began to express the qualities inherent in it and to seek to experience for itself what those qualities actually uh, are. And so that's sort of the origin of, of all that is. However, at the root, all of it rolls up to one being. So that's really the core of the sort of overall understanding of, of what is and, and how it came to be. Yeah. On a more personal level, the goal of the Sufis for each of us individually is to actually realize that knowledge, not just as a uh, dogma or a belief, but to literally have the direct experience of that unity for oneself beyond a shadow of a doubt. And uh, all of the practices and training and work that one does along the Sufi way is really to help to attain that vision of reality and that understanding of reality. Mm -hmm. A more possibly esoteric understanding would also be that once one has that vision in a very complete way, that it involves a dissolution of the individual's personality or ego. And at the point at which that happens, one, in a sense, ceases to exist. But the nature of things is that we always come back to ourself, in a sense. And the difference would be that prior to that event occurring, that one's recollection of, our, of your self and personal history would be through the mechanism of your individual personality. But once you have completely dissolved in the essence of the universe, at that point, when you return to yourself, you're actually remembered by the universe itself. And in a sense, you now become kind of a permanent fixture uh, and memory of the universe as a whole. And 
that's one of those kind of very esoteric, very mystical things that I don't completely understand, but it sort of uh, has a very interesting poetic flavor to it. Yeah. And uh, it sort of enhances the beauty of what it is that we do. Mm. And would you say, as you were saying that, certainly has, you, you can hear the echoes of that in other traditions, for example, Buddhism and, and maybe Vedanta, but the, the sense of, of you describing the dissolution of self. And would it be accurate to say a, a kind of primary shift in identity from the individual self-sense or ego to a more of a cosmic identity and then you're re-inhabiting that self more from that that new identity i would say that's exactly right hmm. so it sounds like in some of what you're saying certainly sufism in the sufi way has and you you certainly alluded to this in the very beginning it has a lot of similarities to other paths and traditions in so that seems clear and no, so number one is that right and then number two i would i'd love to ask how, how do you see it as different right well i think that the essence of all pathways is the same and i think that there is a recognition amongst the sufis that i know at least that we're all going to the mountaintop and we're just taking different paths up the mountain depending on where we are and who we are. But essentially, we're all going to the same place. So uh, as I said before, the differences are more external and have a lot more to do with, uh, tech. let's call it techniques or practices that Sufis may do that may be the same or different from other paths and traditions, but fundamentally they all sort of do the same thing and they're just different ways to produce an identical result. Got it. All right. So that's a good transition to the just this basic question. How does the path of Sufism work? How does this how what is the Sufi way? What are the steps sure. on the way? Well I, the uh the first step really is uh to do what is called turning toward versus turning away. So in the, the very beginning of the Sufi way, uh, if you're working with a teacher, and actually I should probably back up for one minute because one of the core teachings, again, at least with the groups that I've been associated with, is the idea of a living teacher, that the uh, tradition is something that's passed on not only orally, but also energetically, and that it's uh, difficult, if not impossible, to go uh, any distance on the path without a living exponent of the teaching. One of the reasons for that is that the circumstances in which we all live are continuously changing. You could look at it as a cultural change. You could also look at it as a change that we each go through in our own lives, you know, depending mm. on where we live, who we're married or not married to, where you know where we work, etc. And because there are so many variables that we all live within, that someone who has walked the path completely from start to finish is able to advise and to guide you 
through all the different possible pitfalls and minefields and uh, sort of save time by pushing you in the right direction when you need that and uh, helping you to avoid the things that you should be avoiding. So I would say that the first thing is to, that if you really want to seriously practice the Sufi way, one has to find a living teacher who can act as a guide. Hmm. Um, I should also say that the guru approach, which is more typical in India and Eastern countries, is, is different. Uh, the, the Sufis consider themselves more like an elderly uh, uncle or grandfather as opposed to someone who's your master. In fact, they don't really use the term master, so to speak, it's, it, except to maybe allude to someone's mastery of the practices. But yeah. there is not the same kind of look and feel to a, t- a Sufi teacher as one would find in the traditional Indian guru sort of relationship. So anyway, that's uh, to begin with, one finds a living teacher and typically the first practices on the way are to learn to distinguish between positive and negative uh, influences. And the idea being that although everything is considered a unity in its essence, the expression of the qualities of reality divide into different polar opposites. So you have a positive and a negative and so forth. And in the Sufi way, we turn toward what we feel is positive. Some of that is guided by our teachers in the beginning, and some of it in the long run becomes part of our intuition as to what's good for us versus what's bad for us. So the fundamental idea is to turn toward those things which you feel are positive and life-enhancing and to turn away from those things which are the opposite. I have a question about that. Sure. So that almost sounds like it. There's a moral dimension in that. Is that right? Like when? How, how would you? What's a corollary example of that? Is that that one? Is that a outer manifestation of influence or inner manifestation of influences? Are you turning away from? Is it certain inner motivations or patterns of thought and? Um, perhaps triggers of certain behavior or is it more like you're turning away from alcohol or you're turning away from potentially destructive relationships or or that way? Yeah, I, I think that that's right. I think that uh, morals and ethics are viewed as cultural external factors and decisions that each uh, community and each culture decides for themselves. But I think in the Sufi way, there's a more intrinsic connection to, let's call it life-supporting versus not Mm. life-supporting. I like that. So I think that as you progress on the path, your uh, ability to discern between what actually is positive for you versus not becomes greater and greater and more refined. Mm. There are plenty of examples in the history of the Sufi uh, tradition of uh, supposedly great teachers or great uh, exponents of the tradition who went against the orthodox morality uh, of of the time that they lived in 
in most cases, they were clever enough to somehow uh, convert the situation into a teaching story. Uh, in some cases, they were actually uh, done away with. So there isn't necessarily there is not sort of an external code of contact conduct, and I think it's for each of us to decide in the end what is actually right uh, along the way. And yeah, but in the beginning, it's very confusing. So that's one of the one of the ways that a teacher or a guide can help is to help you to sort that out. I'd love to ask Tom, like, so what for? Would you mind sharing an example for like a personal example of how? that played out for you? Sure. Uh, you know, in my case, uh, I noticed that when I was around very large crowds of people, that it tended to make me very tired uh, and very drained. And I would say, you know, specifically things like large celebrations uh, with, with family, for example, or where mm -hmm. there was, a, you know, dancing and music like, like at a wedding, or a, a concert, a rock concert or a music concert of some kind, uh, I found that being in those kinds of situations for me afterwards, I literally might, it might take me uh, several days to actually begin to feel normal and well again after being involved in one of those kinds of situations. So it's learning to discern that kind of uh, sensation that am I going into a situation which is going to enhance my energy or am I going into a situation that's going to drain me and potentially make me ill? Um, mm -hmm. That would be a very easy one uh, to, yeah. to understand. And I think that this idea also brings up an important point, which is my particular teacher who I met uh, almost 13 years ago, one of the first things that he explained to me about the Sufi way is that in a sense, the path itself is about learning how to manage and administer one's own energy. And uh, in this context, energy is the same thing as life force. So if you're involved in things which make you feel alive and well and good and positive and all is well, that's more and more in the direction of life force. If you become involved in things which are draining and tiring and uh, debilitating, then that's going in the other direction. And there are, you know, there are subtle distinctions because going out and exercising may make you physically tired, but for all of us who have done that on any kind of regular basis, you also know that the benefits of that will actually outweigh the sort of temporary discomfort that you might feel at the end of your exercise routine. Right. <clears throat> that would be a good example, I think, of the knowingness that comes when you experience different parts of your life and you see the parts that go in the direction of more life and the parts that go in the direction of less life. Mm, great. So that's the so it sounds like we've covered the first two steps so far in the way. You talked about the turning towards and then you talked about this sort of discrimination around, you know, really starting to make choices about what supports your life force and what doesn't. Right. Uh, and I think that the, uh, the third, it, you could sort of consider it like a third step, although in a sense, these ideas are uh, proposed to a student in the beginning. And to the extent that 
a person has a capacity to learn and experience these things, different pieces may come into operation at different times. So I don't, I don't want to give the intention that there's sort of like a very static step-by-step process, but in terms of talking about and communicating it, it's probably easier if we stick to a format like that. Great. I think another aspect of this, which is I break it off into its own um, area because it's our, all of our relationships with people and because we are communal beings to begin with, learning how we interact with other people and how other people interact with us is a really big part of this. And one of the first things that I was taught is that human culture in general is designed to have one person taking life force from another person. And although that seems like a harsh condemnation of human culture, it's really really sort of presented as kind of a way to see things so that you understand where life force actually comes from. Mm. And that opens up a whole area of practice. And one of the, uh, the basic ideas here is that the difference between someone who's on the Sufi way versus someone who's not is that the, the Sufi practitioner learns how to connect with life force directly from the source, right from the very beginning. So the meditation practices and other path practices are designed to enhance our connection to the source of all life. And we come to recognize that when we're in the presence of other people, that most of the people that we connect with and and, uh, come in contact with in our life do not know how to connect to the source for themselves. So they do what they have to do, which is to take energy from other people. The primary mechanism for that is attention. Mm -hmm. So if I do things which make you focus on me in a certain way, your attention is feeding me with life force. And I'm sure we've all had the experience, uh, I think lots of people uh, would have the experience of knowing someone or more than someone that they might consider sort of like an energy vampire. Yeah. So as soon as they come in contact with that person, it's like they immediately start to feel weak, they feel drained, they feel tired, and just being with that type of person is exhausting. And I think the main difference between those type of people and the the general uh, population is that those people are the most expert at taking energy energy away from other people. Yeah. But in you know in in general, uh, human culture does not have too many ways for people to connect with energy. But I'll I'll talk about a couple of things that people do that actually are uh, life enhancing. So. For example, large sporting events, the collection of a lot of people all focused on the same thing at the same time seems to have the effect of generating a lot of life force. And there's a lot of research that shows that people uh, are very excited and very energized and really sort of pumped up after they go to sporting events. The underlying reality is that they've gained a tremendous boost of life force by participating in that event. Yeah, totally makes sense. 
Same thing with uh, big religious uh, ceremonies or other kinds of gatherings that people have where there's a, a more positive spin to the event. The other source of life force is uh, love, is that when you're in relationship with people that you care very deeply for and you care for and provide service to other people, that is actually a source of energy. That's one of the ways that the Sufis work is to dedicate their lives to service to other people, not just because it's a good thing or a moral thing or an ethical thing, but also because it's just the way things work that when you are giving of yourself, you're also receiving and generating life force, not only for yourself, but also for other people. Yes. Beautiful. So once you've established those orientations in your life, the next piece is really just the practices uh, that the sort of day-to-day things that uh, Sufis tend to do. And uh, again, depending on which order or which uh, aspect of the Sufi uh, path you're on, those practices may differ to some degree. But uh, in general, uh, there are a lot of practices that are very meditation-like. And there are a number of practices that have to do with things like walking meditations and also a uh, way of being in the world without getting completely sucked into all the drama and all of the sort of pain and suffering that goes on around all of us, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. One question, Tom, before we move forward into the techniques and practices just coming back to this idea of sources of energy, what role then does the teacher play in that sort of constellation of energy sources? Because I know you've spoken a little bit about that to me in ways that I found fascinating, and I'd love it if you could speak a little bit more to that. Sure, that's a great question, uh, and also a very important one. So one of the things that I've noticed in, uh, about the way that the, the Sufis operate is that the definition of a teacher or a guide is not just someone who has a certain intellectual understanding or has attained a certain mastery of uh, specific techniques, although that's, that is part of it. But uh, teachers, in effect, are people who have reached that point where their connection to the source of life is pretty much a constant 24-7 experience. And you can actually, once you become sensitized to life force and energy, uh, which is something that happened to me very early in the path, the people who have attained that become sort of obvious. And they actually generate a very large field of life energy that is literally something that can be felt and experienced and has the effect of raising your frequency as long as you're in the presence of that energy field. There is a connection that always continues once you've been initiated into the Sufi way. You're always connected to your teacher no matter where you are or how far you are. But I've noticed that being in the physical presence of people of that caliber is uh, is a very different experience. And mm. that's one of the signs of, of teachership. It's not the only one, but it's, it's one of the more important ones. Right. 
I don't I have this picture in my head of the teachers almost being like a, a cosmic battery. They just get charged up and then through their teachings, through their associations with their students, they're able to transmit, share, and kind of deliver that energy. And so like one, is that kind of an, is that like a semi-accurate portrayal or image? And, or is it more just like that they're a very pure conduit through which this universal energy or life force that you're describing just simply moves through and the, and it's less like a battery and more just like a conduit. I mean, I don't know if those are helpful analogies, but can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I, I think the conduit is, is more uh, in line with, with the reality of it. Uh, a battery would sort of imply that you get charged up and then gradually the charge wears off after a certain amount of time. And that's not really the case. My experience has been that people who have gotten to that point in their own development literally do act as a conduit for this energy. And they, their experience of it as well as the uh, people around them is it's a very significant uh, change in the way that they appear and how they operate. It's interesting because some, you know, p- people that are not involved in a positive direction in their life are often unable to spend much time in the presence of a teacher in the Sufi way because the overwhelming energy is so positive. If a person is really uh, looking for something else, they, they just they can't stand to be in that presence. Right. On the other hand, for people who are aspiring and starting out on the path, being in the presence of a teacher is important because it's almost like it gives you a boost. It's, uh, it's almost impossible to get your own connection to source jump-started. Uh, it does happen. I mean, there are people throughout history who have stumbled upon or through one accident of nature or another have been able to uh, make that connection. But when you're in the presence of someone who's connected to that and you experience it for yourself, uh, in a, you're almost, in a sense, borrowing energy from them. Uh, it's very obvious, like, okay, this is where we're going. This is where the path is leading. Now I understand how this feels. And when I don't feel like this, then I, I have a good distinction between what may be life-supporting and what may not be. So, Got it. And that, that, but- that is probably one of the primary ways that the Sufis actually teach without words, without any sort of intellectual banter is really just being in the presence of that energy and feeling that connection and uh, sensing where it's coming from and how to connect with it inside of your own being. Mm. That's very interesting. All right. So I have a couple of follow-up questions on that. And so, for example, just using my own experience in the ashram and with my, say, one of my former teachers, I know that there were certain times like I was on retreat with one of my teachers and there was a there was an experience that very direct and this would happen often of certain kind of transmission, a certain energetic transmission often in, in what feels like similar ways to what you're talking about. The effect on me being 
well, there could be different qualities, but one, sometimes it would just be like a very deep and profound quietening of my entire being. So it's almost as if all my problems, all my cares, all my concerns, all my neurosis, everything would just sort of settle down and then really there'd be a very palpable sense of presence or a sense of something sacred. And really then it was in the presence of my teacher much easier to attend simply to that and Mm -hmm. for that to naturally just become the center of my focus. So sure. In his presence, there was the sense that it, it, it was an opportunity to cultivate that presence as a reference point. And, and, but then my question to you is that over time through my own meditation practice, through sitting in it for an hour or two hours, I found that I really didn't need my teacher to be there to provide that sense of presence, to provide that sense of touching the ground, as I would call it, the ground of my own being. And that the, the practice soon, or over time, over many years, gave me the capacity to really do that on my own, to be independent in that connection to myself or that or, or source. And is that analogous, that process I'm describing, is that analogous to to some of what you're describing as well? Yeah, I think it would be directly analogous. It's uh, really the same process, the beginning stages where the aspirant doesn't have the familiarity with what energy feels like or where it comes from, that's when the presence of the teacher is probably the most important Yeah, because it gives you that beacon for where to direct yourself. As you go along and as you learn and uh, practice the various meditational type practices, you very quickly learn how to connect with the source of energy for yourself. And to the extent that you're dedicated you will only grow in that connection over time. And uh, there is a point, you know, I, I think it's something that just sort of happens naturally. I don't, there's no sort of fanfare, fanfare or signals or anything like that. But at a certain point, you go from being a beginner where you need the presence of the teacher in order to identify that life source energy. And at a certain point, you begin to know, okay, I, I, can actually connect with this energy myself without any sort of intermediary or any sort of uh, assistance. And you, in turn, become, in, in a smaller way in the beginning and larger over time, a beacon of that same energy. And that is one of the central themes of being on the, on the way, is that mm. we gradually build our connection and, you know, we're constantly cleaning it and uh, making sure that it's uh, clean and pure and uh, open. And that is a lot of what the work of the Sufi does along the way, is to just continuously improve that connection. And that being said, the because uh, one of the things that you mentioned, which is interesting, is that you would experience that energy from your own teacher, but also it would lead to 
a different type of awareness, a different type of consciousness that you might than what you might normally experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's actually a very critical point uh, because there is this idea that we have in all of us as human beings have latent uh, faculties which can perceive these uh, higher connections to source and unity and so forth. So in a sense, the mystic experience is something that all of us are capable of, but uh, our ability to access that state on demand, in a sense, is sort of what separates the people that really work at it and practice it every day versus uh, the average person. But I think the important point is that without a certain amount or enough of that life force energy available, that it's uh, impossible for the average person to have those experiences. So in a sense, it's like the energy of life is the fuel which allows consciousness and awareness to evolve and to expand. And yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, once you reach the point where you're connected all the time, you are, you you know, pretty much on the road to, uh, success because from that point on everything that you do in a sense is, uh, evolving and growing. That's cool. As you were talking, some other parallels came up for me in thinking about, again, this sort of sources of energy and I realized like so much of in the ashram so much of community life in a lot of ways serves the same function as what you're talking about in in relationship to the big sporting events or the big religious festivals living in an intentional community where everyone's focused on the same thing every there's a there's a tremendous source of energy in that and I realized as you're talking about it, it's like, well, of course. Yep. We were all generating a lot of energy, but then we were we were all benefiting from that sort of collective mojo that we were generating together. And that was that was really helping all of us go much deeper in our practice. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. And a lot of what people refer to now as conscious communication or nonviolent communication is actually very tied up with this concept. To the extent that we communicate with other people and the intention is to inflate our own self-importance, we are in effect taking energy away from someone else. The opposite is true that to the extent that we are being of service and our intention is to help and to uh, provide knowledge information or some positive emotional feeling to uh, to someone else. We're providing energy not only to ourselves but also to the other person. So that's why it can be very tiring to watch or listen to someone who is talking mainly about themselves and their own accomplishments and how great and how important they are uh, (laughs) all the time as opposed to someone who's actually literally looking out at the people uh, you know in a, in a in a loving way in a caring way in a way of of serving them it's a very different uh, kind of communication it's a very different type of experience 
I'd love to transition and shift a little bit more into the specific processes and practices in starting to embody the way. I hope you enjoyed my interview with aboutmeditation.com co-founder Tom Bershad. If you want to connect with Tom directly, you can just reach out to us via the contact form on our website over at aboutmeditation.com. And don't forget to catch next week's sequel to this episode. You're going to love it. If you like this show, that one, the next one is even better. So be sure to check that out. And one more reminder, since we're on the topic, when you're over there at aboutmeditation.com, don't forget to pick up our free collection of meditation resources called Meditation for Life. You can get two free guided meditations in a three-part meditation seminar. And all that's free. And if you enjoyed the show, please help us get the word out. And really one of the best ways to do that is to leave us a rating and a review over on iTunes. That's really, it's the best way to help other meditators discover our show. And you can do that over at aboutmeditation.com forward slash iTunes. That's about meditation.com forward slash iTunes. And finally, let's end with a quote. And this one is from the great poet Rumi. And he says, Your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it.